Good morning. It's good to be here with you. Uh, last, uh, for those of you who were last week, I was visiting Boulevard Presbyterian, our sister church, so that um, Jeff Schneider, who was able, who was the, their pastor, was able to be here. So it was nice to visit there, but it's good to be back and uh, worshiping with you and looking at God's Word together. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue our fall series uh, looking at the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are a collection of sayings by Jesus. There's two places that they're found in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew Beatitudes, and they are a chance for us to think about what it means to walk in the way of Jesus. The Beatitudes offer a way of being. They say to us, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they... Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. We'll see. My microphone doesn't have attitudes right now. Um, any ideas? No? Okay. We'll just, we'll just go along. Um, blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Today we'll look at blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. These blessings, are they mark a path, as I said, a way of being in the world. And they're also an opportunity for us to think about our own lives, to examine ourselves. Now, often the best way to do that, to see things or to, to learn, is through a contrast. And so we've been contrasting the Beatitudes with the traditional vices. Pride, envy, vainglory, sloth, greed, lust, wrath, and gluttony. And so this morning, we'll have a chance to look at the contrast between pure in heart and lust. So we'll look at the passage from Matthew 5, where Jesus introduces this beatitude. Then we'll look at a passage from 1 John 3 that invites us to think about what Jesus is saying in these words. So you can follow in your order of worship, or you can follow in your Bible or just listen as I read. Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor, pure in heart for they shall see God. And then 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and we pray that you'd be with us as we hear and we consider what you're calling us to be and to do. We thank you that your call is the beginning of life, that you've called us to gather here, you've called us to awaken in Christ, you've called us to be your children in Christ. We pray that by faith we may receive that and rest upon it and that we may hear your word today and walk in your ways. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning as we look at this beatitude, there's going to be two parts to the sermon. The first part will be looking at this Matthew 5 passage and to ask what does it mean to have a pure heart? What is purity of heart? And second, we'll look at the first John passage and see the link, the link between purity of heart and seeing. The link between purity of heart and seeing. So blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's what Jesus says to us and to his followers. And so we, it's a good place to start by asking, what does this mean? What does it mean to be pure in heart? 
And what we want to start right away is by saying this is not a call to perfection. Pure in heart does not mean that we no longer sin or that we're sinless before God. The best definition I have heard comes from a theologian and philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, who said the purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Okay, that sounds, sounds good, sounds you know, witty, but what does that mean? It means the heart. The heart is the center of our being. It's the place of our deepest loves and affection. Jesus is saying that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And a pure heart is one that is not mixed or confused, going in different directions. Rather, the pure in heart is the person who has exchanged a multitude of possibilities, a multitude of voices, for one thing. That he or she would direct her heart towards that one good. The purity of heart is to will one thing. When I was a student in St. Louis, I had a chance to read by an author named Francis Schaeffer, and a number of his writings were very helpful to me. And there's an illustration that came to mind as I thought about this passage. And he described that one of the beauties of the Christian faith, one of the good things, is it has this ability, this kind of way to center us. It's like a center. He pictured it as a ring in which all the cables of our life can now become attached to this one ring, bringing order and bringing connection to all the different parts of who we are, all the different things that we have in our life. That faith can be like a ring that unites and anchors our life together. This one thing, using that image, the image of a ring as one thing, tells us from where we came from, tells us why we're here, how to live, where we're headed. It is a center that speaks about why or how we work, speaks about what it means to be a parent, how we are to relate to one another, how we are to use our resources, how we're to think about our time or our money or our gifts. This is a center, a ring, an anchor in which we can understand life or seek direction or set priorities and make decisions. Not to say that the one thing in life makes all those things clear, but they set a starting point in which to begin to understand and how to make a framework to who we are and why we're here. The purity of heart is this idea of concentrating all of our energies and interests of life upon a primary purpose, a primary objective, to live out of that center. Now the Christian faith, why we gather here this morning hearing God's call, the Christian faith offers Christ himself as that center. And that you and I are called to live our lives, to love God with all of who we are, to love our neighbors as ourselves. That this is a true ring, a true center, a true anchor that is worthy to be entrusted, to attach the cables of our life to. I don't know how that sounds to you. I imagine the idea of the purity heart is to will one thing, to have something that centers us, that sounds attractive, that we long for it, that we also know, though, that directing ourselves to one thing is difficult. The Christian faith offers us this ring that is worthy, but there are many other voices, many other opportunities, many other pressures that would seek to take a place of center to tell us who we are. There are many voices, many responsibilities that call for our attention, many pursuits and promises of pleasure or success or mattering in this world. 
And as a result, Scripture says, and our experience validates, that our hearts are conflicted. Scripture describes the opposite of the pure heart as double-minded or double-hearted. In the New Testament, in the letter of James, we hear the, phrase, the word double-minded. And he uses the image of being tossed here and there by the waves of life, of being unsure. In the Old Testament, in a couple of different places, there's the image of a double heart, having two hearts, being drawn in different directions, different voices about how we will live and who we will be. Double-minded, double-hearted. It's this idea, right, that something other than God seeks to be the center, the, the one thing. Something else seeks to replace or to compete for that central ring that will hold the cables of our life together. And that's where the vices, the traditional list of vices, come in. For, well, the vices, in many ways, we think about them as good things that have, are seeking now to rise up to be the ultimate thing in life. That's what makes them a vice. It's something good that God gave, but now we seek in our twisted hearts to make it become ultimate. We can think of greed. Money or possessions become the center that defines us or determines life and our choices and our relationships. We can think of the vainglory, a word that we might not be as familiar with, but this idea of reputation. At the center can be everything, even our work, our marriage, our relationships, our parenting, our faith can be about making sure others see us as good. And today we can think of another vice that offers itself as a center, and that is lust. And lust, my own pleasure is the goal. My own pleasure is the lens by which I decide what is good and how I view life myself and others. My own pleasure is the gold, and I decide where to get it, when and with whom. We can do this in many different ways. Lust traditionally is the category of looking to sexual or physical pleasure. Humans, we know this. We turn created things, created goods, such as alcohol and food or sexual pleasure. We turn to them seeking solace, seeking to fill the restlessness of our longings, to gain a sense of relief and relief in the midst of pain or sorrow. But bodily cravings never have anything but temporary satisfaction. Lust, if we understand this, what it, how it contrasts from a, a pure heart setting on one thing, a lust makes viewing other persons made in the image of God increasingly difficult. It's hard for us to see the other person as one who has value and glory in God because rather we're now beginning to see people more and more as objects of our own gratification. As a result, it reduces the purpose of sex and alienates people from one another. I want to be clear that Scripture never dismisses sexual desire. Scripture never dismisses the sexual act as meaningless nor does Scripture dismiss the humans involved as meaningless. Rather, it speaks against lust and the practice of bodily desire outside of marriage because our bodies matter, because people matter. And the good gift of sex and the union it was made to bring matters. 
There's a lot of writing about virtue and the contrast to the vices in the ancient Greek world, not just in the Christian tradition, but in the ancient Greek philosophers. And one of the things that the philosophers said that they taught that if humans were merely animals, if you and I were merely bodies, merely animals, bodily pleasure would be enough to fulfill us. But they wrote and they knew that there is more to being human than having a body. Sexual union is not merely a physical act, but a human act. It is identifying, forming a unifying act. It has an interpersonal or social dimension that brings us into connection, intimacy with another. And it's for this reason that God sets it in the context of the covenant of marriage. Sexual desire ultimately is meant to bring us into union and intimacy with another. Therefore, self-control is about honoring another person, honoring our neighbor, honoring God. And so lust is different than that because it seeks to raise sexual desire or pleasure to the point of center. Lust pretends sex is just about a personal experience, separating the desire from God in our primary purpose. It seeks to make gratification the center of who we are. So Jesus invites us to hear, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are setting their hearts not on things unworthy to trust. Blessed are those who are not double-minded or double-hearted, but blessed are those who entrust themselves or will themselves around one thing, one who is worthy, God himself. And I want us, as we think more about this, to see the connection between purity and seeing. This is coming in the First John passage, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. One author observed, love always seizes the eye first, then the hand. If I close my eyes, my hands too remain unemployed. The eye, our seeing, is linked with our hearts and our minds, our bodies. In Scripture, the word seeing is not just the visual taking in of information. The word seeing has a deeper meaning throughout the Scriptures. In numerous places we see this. It carries the idea of connection. If I, I see someone, I not just have you know, a knowledge that they exist, but I see them, there's a personal, intimate connection with that person. To know someone, not in a distant, impersonal way, but in an intimate manner. To see you. Therefore, to see also carries the idea of transformation or change. As I see one, I am moved towards that person, or as I see that person, I might become like them. And purity of heart is linked to seeing, to where, to whom we direct our seeing, our knowing. Where it is that we direct our vision, our sense of knowing, begins to form who we are. And the first John passage references seeing in this fullness three times. It says, one, see what kind of love the Father has given. Two, we, we shall see him as he is. And three, that he who hopes in him. Three different words, three different languages, but all getting around this idea of seeing and knowing and being connected to God as the center begins to change who we are. So we can ask, how do we begin to focus our hearts and minds? How do we let go of the many voices or many different opportunities around us to, to will one thing worth willing? the one thing worth our hearts. Our passage tells us that we can start by being single-minded about the generosity of God's love for you and for me. The first type of seeing that's mentioned is see, understand, know, see what kind of love 
the Father has given. If you've read 1 John before, you might notice the number of times it talks about God's love. This passage opens over the wonder of God's love, and John writes more about divine love than any other New Testament author. The Gospel of John references God's love 40 times. And in just five chapters, 1 John references it 46 times. For those of you who like numbers, (laughs) the next closest New Testament book is Ephesians, and it only references it 20 times. So John is inviting us in his writing over and over again to capture the wonder of God's love. That God has acted for you and me. And it's through his actions we have a new identity. The love is described here as it's a love in which he has adopted us as his children. In Christ, we are called children of God. In order to stress this identity, John adds, and so we are. And so we are. We are called children of God, and this is not simply a term, but actually who we are, our identity. And so we, hear, we start here by this action of God for us. Think, in the face of your sin, in the face of others mistreating you, even in the face of the world's judgments or opinions about who you are, what you've done or not done. This is who you are in Christ. You are a child of God. In Christ, we are beloved. In Christ, we are God's sons and daughters. And what I want us to see this morning is that this adoption, this love that God has acted for us, this is our identity. It is our center. God is offering himself. One thing, sorry, my, as we think about this, we need to see that God is offering himself. The gift of God is that he has moved towards us that we might see and know him, be connected to him personally. Purity of heart. If you're like me, when I hear that beatitude, some of them are kind of attractive to me. I'm, if I'm poor in spirit, I have the kingdom of God. If I know my poverty. But here, if I'm pure in heart, does that mean that I need to get myself together? And here we need to be clear that Jesus is not saying pure of heart is that you have figured out how to put away all sin or that you're perfect. Purity of heart does not rest in you getting yourselves in order. Rather, it is living in the knowledge of God actions for you. To will one thing always rests. It always rests in receiving God and what God has done in his love. To will one thing always starts, always rests in God's actions for you. That God brings sinners who have wandered away, brings them back to himself. To all those who have entrusted themselves to false loves, false centers, God has acted to bring us home, to return to the one thing worthy of trust. This gift, this new identity, is connected to a future promise. The first thing that we could see is God's love, and the second way that seeing is talked about is that we actually see God face to face. This identity, this center, is based in God's action for us. It's linked to a promise We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. One day when Jesus appears, we will be like him, because we shall see him as he is. 
When Christ appears, you will also appear with him in glory. When Christ appears, all you who are in Christ will be transformed. Purity of heart is linked to seeing, to knowing, to being in connection through God's love. But purity of heart also rests in a promise that God will transform you. And at the heart of this transformation is that we will see God as he is. Everything hinges on this promise. Do you see this? This promise says to you and to me that our sin, or how others have treated us, or even our death is not the final word. Everything hinges on this promise that our destiny rests in being like Christ. That all brokenness and hurt, injustice and sin, all sickness and death, they will be removed. They will no longer hold you. Rather, you will see Christ, you will see God as he is, and you will be changed by that vision to become like Christ. Our identity and promise, these are the things that we can hold on to. The one thing. Henry Nouwen is an author, a Christian author, and he wrote a book called The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's a book that explores the parable that Jesus taught about the prodigal son parable. But also through the book, Nouwen meditates on Rembrandt's painting of that parable. He meditates on this painting of Scripture. And the painting is a beautiful painting. If you haven't seen it, you should maybe take a chance to look it up on Google sometime today. The painting is a dark painting. It's mostly dark around the edges, but the center is illuminated with light. And in the midst of this light is the younger son who has wandered off, squandered his life. He's come home in rags, come home covered in shame. Now he's on his knees. And this shamed son is burying his face in his father's chest. For the center of the painting, the one that the light is coming forth, is the father who has run out to his son, putting both arms, embracing his son upon his knees, welcoming him. Receiving this sinful, wandering son Affirming again, you are my child. And now when looking at that painting and reflecting, he sees and he enters the story. He writes, for most of my life I have struggled to find God, to know God, to love God. I have tried hard to follow the guidelines of the spiritual life, to pray, to serve, to read scripture, to avoid temptations. I failed many times, but always tried again. Now I wonder... Now I wonder whether I have sufficiently realized during all this time God has been seeking me. God has been knowing me and loving me. The question is not how am I to find God or how am I to love God, but the question is do I know the love of God for me? Do I know God as the Father who has been watching, who runs, and who embraces even the wandering sinner? As we think about the purity of heart to will one thing, to what it is we build our life around or put at the center of who we are, do you and I trust in an all-forgiving love that one has adopted us as sons and daughters and promised that we will be with him for all time? Or do we still think that God requires some explanation from us, God requires some type of work to show our worth or that we can look elsewhere to find something worthy. 
Now is inviting us to come to realize the purity of heart is not based in my actions or your actions, but it's in God searching for me. The center of the story, the center of the painting, the center of a pure heart is knowing the Father's love for us. I, I could say it over and over again. And if I did so, I'd be saying it to myself. The purity of heart rests not in my actions or my overcoming. Rest in the wonder and my willingness to even receive and believe that God and His love has moved towards me, towards you to adopt you as a child. The passage ends by saying, everyone who thus hopes in Him, that is Jesus, purifies himself as He is pure. And why we live this present identity, we hold on to the promise of the future, we do this by faith, Here, faith is spoken of as hope. Here, vision of of seeing, seeing which which we know God and which we rest in God is spoken of as hope. And today, as we gather and hear God's word, we can ask again, how do we live? Whose voice do we listen to? To whom do we entrust ourselves? What is it we hope will pull together the cables of our life? Here we're invited to say the Scripture tells us that when we hope in Christ, it will purify us. His, by His grace, will change us as we order our life in Him. A daily resting in His love, affirming God's action at the center. Hope is a decision we make continually. Day by day, where will we place our hope? And as we do so, we have to remember as we seek to follow God and as we live in his family, we encounter times and the world does not know us, does not understand us. We remember that it did not know or understand Jesus either. For if we know this adoption, if we place Christ as the one thing, the world will not recognize such an identity, such a sinner. If we can think in terms of lust, the world tells you and I that if we're going to be truly happy, then we need to place your desires, desires at the center We need to pursue self-gratification. We need to make sure that things fit around in a way that will bring us the pleasure that we desire. But in hope, but in faith, and seeing Christ and His love for us, we say that self-gratification, that physical pleasures cannot be our identity. They cannot satisfy us fully. They cannot be the center that defines who we are. As we close, I... Jesus, I say Jesus has presented himself as the one who was abandoned, the one who was used, the one who was crucified. This is the purity of Christ, that he presented himself as the one who was abandoned and used and crucified, and in doing so, he bears our sin. He bears the lusts of our hearts, the times in which we have in our minds or in our actions used others for our own purposes. Christ bore that on the cross. He bore the evil and the sin of that. Jesus is the one who was abandoned, used, and crucified. He is the one who knows and represents the experience of being used by others, being the object of another's lust, being devalued at the hands of another with power. Jesus invites us to confess both our sin but also to bring our brokenness and our sorrow 
and our hurt to Him, to speak hope into our present circumstances, that He is worthy of us giving our very hearts to Him, that who we are ultimately does not rest in the opinion of others, who we are does not rest in the actions of others or the circumstances of the world. For in the face of our sinful hearts, in the face of a broken and evil world, we're invited to affirm that in God's love we are children of God. And so we are now. Beloved, we are God's children now. And let us hold on to that, that it may purify us now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are. And thank you, Lord, for us. We thank you for your faithfulness that in your purity you drew near to those who are impure, that you may lift our heads, that we may know what it is to be received in love, not shame. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.